Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm very pleased to say we have my colleague, Lisa Heineman, here to talk to us about her new book, Before Porn Was Legal, The Erotica Empire of Beat. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have my colleague, Lisa Heineman, here to talk to us about her new book, Before Porn Was Legal, The Erotica Empire of Beata Use. Pornography came to the United States, I think, through a fellow named Hugh Hefner. I'm sure you've heard of him. He was the founder of Playboy. And he explained to us that pornography was a good thing because it allowed particularly men to pursue a different and more liberated lifestyle. His pornography was, from the beginning, directed toward men, and it was about what I think can be fairly called hedonism. As Lisa points out, in West Germany and then Germany, pornography became popular and legal and really embedded in the culture in a very different way through a very different device. And that device was what's called marital health. And at the center of the story was a really remarkable woman named Beata Use. She was a Luftwaffe pilot. Then she was one of the rubble women after the war. And she was also quite an entrepreneur. She started selling contraceptives and then moved into what we might call sex manuals. And then as the legal restrictions on pornography fell in West Germany, she became a major pornographer. Nonetheless, even to the end of her life, she said that she was really interested in helping couples have healthy relationships. And again, this stands in stark contrast to the kind of hedonistic appeal that someone like you, Hefner, made. And I think current pornographers in the United States still make. Of course, Beata Use had trouble hewing to this line once it became very clear that the where she was selling were entirely directed toward men, and their purpose was obviously masturbation. But nonetheless, it is interesting that pornography came to these two places, the United States and Germany, in these very different ways. Lisa does an excellent job of explaining all of this. I really enjoyed the interview with her, and I think that you'll enjoy it too. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Okay. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Today, I'm very pleased to say we have Lisa Heinemann on the show. She's my colleague here at the... University of Iowa, and a very esteemed colleague, I should say. She has written a a wonderful and very eye-opening book for me. Uh, It's called Before Porn Was Legal, The Erotica Empire of Beata Use. I say it was very interesting for me because, well, as we'll talk about in the interview, pornography found its way into uh, West Germany and then Germany uh, in a very different way than it did in the United States. Uh, And I think that many of the listeners who are in the United States will be surprised to learn this. It really entered in through an entirely different door than it did here. I, 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 I was thinking that Beata Use was Hugh Hefner, but really that's just wrong. And, um, and Lisa it does a wonderful job of, of pointing out how actually Beata Use is a much more 
admirable character that Hugh Hefner, as much as you might like Hugh Hefner. So anyway, congratulations on the, the book, Lisa. Why don't we begin the interview by having you say a few words about yourself? Sure. Um, thanks for having me, first of all. My pleasure. Um, well, I, yeah, I grew up in Philadelphia, and I'm, I'm one of these people that didn't have exactly a very straight line to a historical profession. I was a very serious pianist as a kid, went to music conservatory for a couple of years, decided I didn't want to be a musician, went to college, was pre-med for a few years, decided I didn't want to be a doctor, finished college, went to work for the New York City Council, decided I didn't want to be involved with politics. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, I guess I made the decision to go to history grad school, um, really very much not knowing what I was getting myself into. Um, and I do remember when I was you know, thinking about that, I was thinking American history or German history, American history, German history. Um, and that's because uh, my, my parents do have sort of storied backgrounds. My mom comes from a, a family of uh, a long line of Baptist missionaries and preachers that have been in North America since the colonial days. Mm. Um, my father's a German Jewish refugee. Mm. Um, so, you know, so I was very aware of both of those histories. And basically, I thought, yeah, let's do something foreign. German's a little more exotic. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I ended up as a German historian. Um, I did know from the beginning that I wanted to study the history of women. Um, been a feminist all my life. Uh, had, you know, taken, taken a few classes along, along those lines in college and uh, had been, you know, active in feminist, feminist movements. So once I was in graduate school, was looking to work on the history of women in Germany, basically, and I had three terrific mentors there that sort of helped me cobble that together. In those days, in the dark days when I was in graduate school, there wasn't any place you could go with a real well-established PhD program that had a mentor who was a German women's historian. Mm-hmm. That hadn't really happened yet. So I had a kind of a team of mentors, Konrad Jarausch, who is a, a very well-known social historian of Germany, uh, Gerhard Weinberg, who focuses on Nazi Germany, particularly diplomatic and military history. Um, very, very open, however, it was very uh, instrumental in, in bringing women into the profession and opening up the profession to women's history. And then Judith Bennett, who of all things was a medieval English historian, but of women. Uh, so there was a, it was a kind of a team mentorship that helped me kind of cobble things together uh, and probably helped me to learn how to convince people who weren't women's historians that women's history was worth reading. Mm-hmm. It helped me learn how to explain German history to people who weren't Germanists. Uh, so it was, it, was a, it was a terrific training. I wrote my dissertation on the so-called women standing alone, uh, the the, the wartime, Second World War generation of German women who were either widowed or wouldn't be able to marry because of the demographic balance after the war. Uh, Then when I I turned that into a book, I I ended up with a book that really inquired into marital status and how important is marital status and what does marital status even mean and how do states manipulate marital status. I was looking at Nazi Germany. West Germany, a liberal democratic society, and communist East Germany, they all had very different ways of thinking about what marriage was supposed to mean to women, very different ways of manipulating it. Um, And women's genuine social situation was very different in all three countries. Um, That book introduced me very much also to the history of sexuality. Um, Certain key episodes, clearly issues like uh, single motherhood, contraception and abortion were very important there. Sexual expression outside of marriage became an important theme. Uh, And then also sexual violence. Of course, there's a terrible wave of sexual violence against women at the end of the Second World Mm -hmm. War. Uh, So the work on that book really brought me into the history of sexuality. And uh, when I was finishing up that book, I was asked to write an essay 
on sexuality in Nazi Germany for a special issue of the Journal of the History of Sexuality edited by Dagmar Herzog on sexuality in Nazi Germany. And it was really doing that project that made me think, you know, I wanted to move, I wanted to do a next project that really was centrally about sexuality. And that's sort of how I ended up, ended up with the current project. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let me uh, ask you a, a question about the current project. And I was going to ask, uh, what is the genesis of it? But you've, you've explained that. And, and I just, uh, a question I have since Beata Use is at the uh, center of this book, I guess I want to ask you how you first encountered her. When did you first hear about her? <laughs> It's a great question because many people first encounter her by just, you know, walking through the Frankfurt airport and <laughs> discovering to their astonishment that there's this erotica shop in the Frankfurt airport and it's the Ayatollah shop. Um, I have to admit that during my entire time working on my dissertation, I spent 26 months in Germany. I don't actually consciously remember um, trop- tripping across Beate Uza shops. Um, although, of course, I saw erotica shops while I was there. I just wasn't paying attention to whose shops they were, really. Um, but I do know that when I was doing my dissertation research, I ran across her. She was a kind of a prototypical woman standing alone. Um, she was, I'll, I'll tell you more details about her biography later on, but basically she ended the war as a widow with an infant child needing to make a new life for herself. So she was really a prototypical woman standing alone after the war. I sort of, you know, made a mental note. And as my mother always said, mental notes aren't worth the paper they're written on. Um, so I forgot all about her. Then what happened was when I was working on that essay for the Journal of History of Sexuality, I came across references to her again. And I thought, huh, this is really quite interesting. I wanted to find out more about her. I looked and looked and looked, and I couldn't find out. I mean, I could find out, you know, she had a website, obviously. Um, she was, you know, a real, a real media personality. She was alive at the time. She's no longer alive. Um, but I couldn't find any scholarly work on her. And I kept looking, and I thought, this can't be. It can't be that nobody's written about this woman. But indeed, nobody had written about her. So this was really, you know, a wide-open door for yeah. me to just walk into, talk about having your script written for yeah. you. This was a project just w- screaming to be done. So that's how I ended up uh, working on her. I really, you know, came across her a number of different times. Um, and, of course, once I was really alerted to the intersection of the personality and the enormity of her firm that, of course, you know, every time I go to Germany now, I, I notice when I'm seeing a Beatrice shop as opposed to some other shop. Right. But the kind of interesting thing that, that uh, you note in the book, and I guess it's true, is that pretty much every German knows who Beate Ose is, or they know the brand. Yes, yes. Yeah. So this was, and you know, I've been to Germany a number of times, and I never noticed this. I didn't even notice there were brand name sort of sex shops. Uh, I'm sure that if I went back, though, I'd see it everywhere. You would. And the thing is, you know, what Americans, because we don't know her name, we tend to go to Germany, you know, and and say, wow, there's a lot of sort of open sex shops here. Yeah. Yeah. We don't notice the brand name. No. But like you say, Germans all know who she is. She's absolutely a household name. There was a, uh, she had a, uh, she did a lot of market research. Um, So this was, you know, research that she herself uh, commissioned, but it was done by reputable solid market research Uh firms uh, that discovered, I think, in 1982 that she had 94% Name recognition, making her by far in West Germany, I should say, making her by far West Germany's best known personality, Um, many, many steps ahead of the head of state, I should say. Um, so she's she's an absolute household name over uh-huh. there. Yeah, no, I, I just find that absolutely fascinating because I'd never heard of the woman before I read your book. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, her. Actually, tell us a lot, please, about her extraordinarily interesting life, if you could. And I will interrupt you at various points so we can stop and talk about the, the industry and the kind of set of cultural mores and sexual practices that she helped create. 
Right. And of course, one of the interesting things about, about this project was that there is Beata Uza, the personality, and she really has this sort of larger than life kind of personality and story. She's a big celebrity. And then there's the whole industry she represents. And of course, anytime you sort of make one person representative of the industry, you kind of oversimplify mm-hmm. things. So there are a lot of other things going on. Um, and I should say, you know, this is in, in part a conscious marketing strategy of hers. She wanted Beata Uza to be synonymous with sex, uh, which makes everybody else completely visible. Um, so part of my project was to to sort of trace her life and career. And part of it was to trace the much more complicated story of the erotica industry that her fame actually helped to veil, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because there are a lot of other things going on. It's not actually all about Beata Uza. But she is a fascinating personality. She, she was born to a very unconventional family. Her mother was one of Germany's first handful of female physicians, um, her father was a man who was interested in marrying one of Germany's first female <laughs> physicians. Um, and I should say they got married. Uh, her condition was that she'd be able to continue practicing medicine after marriage and after having children. Uh-huh. Okay? Very unusual family. They had two kids in Berlin, and then after that, they moved to an East Prussian estate. And that's where Beata was born. Uh, so she was the third of three children. At that time, if they were on an estate, her mother did stop uh, practicing medicine commercially, you might say, but she was kind of uh, the, the doctor for the estate. So she actually did continue to practice medicine. Anyway, she did have an unusual background. It was just clearly a kind of a reformist family. And what that meant is that uh, daughters as well as sons were encouraged to chart their own life course. A lot of um, you know physical athleticism. They were encouraged to run around outside a lot. Uh, and there was an open sexual education in the family. Beata herself spent a you know did a stint in a Waldorf boarding school. You know rather than her parents sending her to the notoriously strict Prussian school system, mm-hmm. they opted for this kind of hippie groovy you know yeah. uh, alternative kind of private school. She. Uh, finished school. She went to England for, as an au pair, but along the way, she'd fallen in love with flight. She was a real fan of Charles Lindbergh. She was sort of that generation. It got, got really entranced by Charles Lindbergh. Uh, so she went to flight school. She was the only young woman in her class of 60, got her pilot's license, wow. and shortly thereafter, the Second World War began. Everyone with a pilot's license was inducted into the Luftwaffe. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty much automatic. <laughs> Now, Ouch. well, there you go. You know, um, it's a privilege, and along with privilege yeah. comes, you know, comes duties, right? So, um, she women did not fly combat missions, but they uh, they did test flights to make sure equipment was working. They ferried uh, planes to the front. So, Beata, uh, who married, she married her flight instructor, and that's how she got the name Beata Uza. Her her parents' name was Kustlin. That's the name she was born with. She became Beata Uza upon her first marriage to her flight instructor. Uh, And she, you know, of course, she was flying planes to the front. She was really all around Europe. Uh, Her husband died during the war in a flight accident, leaving her with a baby. And at the end of the war, with the Russians sort of surrounding Berlin, she commandeered a a rickety, falling-apart plane, packed the baby and the nanny on board, and flew uh, west, Ended up crash landing in Schleswig-Holstein, which is Germany's northernmost mm. province. It's a very rural province. It borders on Denmark. So she landed there, promptly landed in prisoner of war camp, uh, was released because of the baby, 
And then she spent a little while trying to locate her family. Uh, her family was quite scattered. Her siblings, her parents had been killed by the Russians. Uh, but basically, she had to make a living for herself and her young son. And she did what so many people uh, did at the time. She went on the black market. And the black market was heavily populated by women. Of course, a lot of men had fallen in the war. A lot more were still in prisoner of war camps. Some of them were finding their way home, haven't made it yet. Uh, the black market so was heavily populated by women. She initially specialized in children's toys, but uh, discovered quickly that there was an even greater need, and that was contraceptives. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we have you know, a, a, a population of women who will do anything to avoid getting pregnant, and, and we're also very interested in ending their pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Germany is a land of rubble at this point. A lot of these women don't have husbands. They have disabled husbands. Uh, they might be refugees from the East. Housing stocks been destroyed. It's very, very hard times in Germany at this juncture. Uh, so... I will say that the, the, the story of what happens next varies depending on when you ask Beata Uza. Her own telling of her biography changed over the years, and that was part of the sort of creation of her personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, during, during the 1950s, she presented a different personality than she did in the 1980s, for example, and that had to do with changes in West German society. But basically, she, uh, if you're to, to go with the most recent version of her story, she remembered her mother's lessons uh, about the rhythm method, uh-huh. went to a library to sort of refresh her memory on the details, um, and put together a little pamphlet explaining the rhythm method. It was very hard to find condoms on the black market, uh, although people knew what condoms were, but they, was, they were just hard to come by. So she marketed this little pamphlet on the rhythm method. And then uh, people would, you know, people snapped it up and they wrote to her and asked, do you have other products? Do you have any books about sexuality? Do you have any condoms? And this really started her second career. Mm -hmm. She then said, well, I guess I'll find some sources for books. I guess I'll find some sources for condoms. Along the way, uh, the German economy began to improve. Um, A new currency was introduced in June of 1948, making it easier to to do business by cash rather than the black market economy. Mm -hmm. And she established um, a mail-order erotica business uh, in the early 1950s. Mm-hmm. It sold all kinds of things. And um, she wasn't the only one doing this. There were you know, somewhere between 50 and 150 you know, competitors, uh, mail-order erotica firms in the early 1950s, uh, certainly 70 at, at least. And... Um, and they, they, they just marketed this and that. Uh, you know, they, they listened to what their customers mar- wanted. Um, and the, her business grew from there. Basically, she, she faced a lot of challenges in the 1950s. There was a, a restrictive legal environment, a lot of st- you know, state res- ret- restrictions on the industry. Very hostile church. Uh, the Catholic Church was quite active in trying to um, you know, suppress the industry. But at the same time, there's tremendous consumer demand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Before, I'm sorry to interrupt. Before we no, go uh, on to yeah. actually talk about her business and, and the kind of things that she uh, – kind of products that she really created and, and marketed successfully. So let's talk a little bit about the background. Um, now, one question I had when reading the book was I remember uh, so very distantly that um, there were these uh, nature magazines that Germans produced in the 19 – I think it was 19-teens and 20s. Yeah, yeah. That had lots of nudes in them and were kind of right. popular. It was yeah. just, I mean, but, but then on the other hand, there wasn't any real, I guess you'd call erotica, because these, these went under a different, these were, these were sort of, um, these were explained in a different way. What, what exactly was, yeah. what, kind of, what, what was the, what was the state of the erotica industry if there was such a thing in Germany, you know, prior to the 1950s? 
Uh, there was an erotica industry in Germany. What you're referring to is something that the German, they call the naturalist movement. Yeah, the naturalist um, And it really, uh, the magazines really came into existence first in the 1920s. Uh, prior to the First World War, there was a pretty strict censorship regime. Uh-huh. Uh, but with the end of the empire, you know, with the, the German Revolution, uh, the censorship laws fell. And then you had these magazines and you had a kind of a, a nudist movement. Yeah, a nudist movement, yeah. Right, exactly, a nudist movement. And these were, you know, people who were, you know, interested in, Contact between the scuts, you know, the sun and the sand and the naked skin, and um, and they they did connect this with a uh, a more wholesome kind of lifestyle. They understood their interpretation was that uh, you know a sort of a Victorian kind of repressive lifestyle was very unnatural, and that it was you know dress reform as well as other kinds of reform. You know, there were also movements for vegetarianism. There were all kinds of lifestyle reform movements in Germany. Um, it was back, various kinds of back-to-nature movements, you might say. Um, and, you know, of course, Germany is a heavily industrialized, heavily urbanized society, and there are many people who sort of think that, that is the, 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 the urban-constrained environment is an unhealthy one. So there is a flourishing in the 1920s of naturalist magazines, of nudist magazines. Uh, interpretations about whether they were erotic, of course, varied. The members of the naturalist or the nudist movement insisted that the last thing they were was erotic. Mm-hmm. Um, it was people who had insisted on covering up the body that really highlighted just how sexy mm. the body was. Mm-hmm. If you didn't worry so much about covering up the body, then it became less sexual. That was mm-hmm. kind of kind of their point. Of course, other people flipped through these magazines and saw plenty <laughs> of sex in them, yeah. right? Uh, so there were there were all these differences of interpretation about this. Uh, but but the naturalist movement did not self identify, let's say, as as sort of a branch of the erotica industry. Having said that, though, all the way back to the nineteenth century, uh, there is a commercial erotica industry in Germany. Um, Germany was a pioneer in sexual science and what that meant is that books were published about sex and books are consumer objects. Books mm-hmm. got sold. Uh, in the 1920s you have magazines, not just the nature, the nudist magazines, but you also have magazines that with sort of sex advice columns, um, restrained by today's standards, but they're certainly there. So there are these consumer objects having to do with the dissemination of sexual science and sexual knowledge. Uh, again, in the, in the uh, interwar period, you get the publication of the first books that really they're, they're sort of for a popular audience, but really go into, you know, what exactly constitutes the sex acts and what, what do the sex organs look like and what is sexual maturation all about? Mm-hmm. Basic educational texts. Uh, those are consumer objects. Uh, Germany is one of the major producers of condoms worldwide already in the 19th century. Uh, and uh, they're exporting hundreds of millions or, 50 or tens or hundreds of millions of condoms a year and, of course, consuming them uh, domestically as well. And condoms are, of course, again, another consumer object. They're sold largely by mail order. Uh, but there are many different outlets for erotica prior to the period I really focus on. A lot of stuff is sold by mail order. And if you look at the back pages of magazines from the 1920s, not necessarily sort of spicy or you know, nudist magazines or anything like that. But if you look at the back of mainstream magazines, you'll see little ads saying, you know, write to this post office book for, box for a book on, you know, the mysteries of life, and that's code for, you know, sexuality. Mm-hmm. Or write to this post office books for a catalog of goods from the rubber industry. That was also <laughs> code language. So in a way, going into the post-World War II period, Germans were already socialized to know that 
sexual objects were consumer goods. Mm -hmm. They already knew that there were sources for some such objects. Of course, pharmacies, apothecaries sold certain kinds of tonics, you know, perhaps to, uh, to affect your sexual response or tonics against impotence, that kind of thing. So, so Germans knew about, about erotica as consumer goods. They knew about mail mm. order. They knew about apothecaries. They knew about vending machines selling condoms, mm -hmm. which came into existence in the interwar period, um, particularly in major urban areas. But not only. You could buy condoms in vending machines. Mm -hmm. um, so what happens in the post-World War II period is in some ways an expansion and a modernization of an industry that's, that's already in place. Mm -hmm. let, me, let me ask this, though, before we go on past World War II. Uh, I guess, that, yeah, well, I was going to ask about the Nazis, but the, the question I really have is um, uh, a concept that, which becomes very important because it becomes, on the one hand, I want to say cover. On the other hand, I want to say it's the, it's the kind of value of erotica, and that is this notion of marital health. Did the Nazis promote marital health? And what exactly is marital health? I don't think this is something that Americans will ever have heard of. Well, Americans who are in the field of history of sexuality will have heard yeah, of Yeah, well, this. there you go. There are Americans there that know a lot more than I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, basically, uh, in, in regimes where there are both legal and cultural constraints against sexuality outside of marriage, the one place where you can legitimately discuss sexuality is to say this will improve the quality of marriage, mm -hmm. right? Nobody wants a high divorce rate. Everyone wants couples to be happy. Everyone wants couples to have lots of children. And, of course, if you're not having sex, you can't have lots of mm -hmm. children. So in, uh, in the – if we sort of take this to the 1920s or so, which across the Western world was a very important era in opening up of discourses about sexuality, uh, across many Western industrialized states, you have much more open discussions of marital health. And in a way that is – in a way it's genuine. Again, people are very concerned about the status of marriage after the First World War, they're concerned about the status of marriage with industrialization and the breakup of village communities and you know, sort of social surveillance. So there are a lot of anxieties about marriage. So there's a genuine concern about marriage and a genuine hope that improving the quality of sex life might also include the quality of marriage. But of course, for many people, there's a realization that sex isn't limited to marriage and that people who aren't married but nevertheless want to have a sexual education all they have to do is go go to the section in, in that, that's about marital health. They know where to find what they need. Mm -hmm. They go to the stuff on marital health, and you know, no one's going to check to see if they're married before they buy a book, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that that language of marital health uh, exists in many places, and it does become a way of legitimizing talk uh, about contraception. Because for some families, what what leads to unhappiness is too many children, children you can't afford. So it becomes legitimate to talk about birth control within the context of marriage and having a healthy family and being able to feed and clothe the children you have properly. And it does become a legitimate place for talking about sexual pleasure as well, because you want spouses to be happy with each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, the, the thing that I find extraordinarily interesting about this, and I mentioned it in the uh, introduction, is that it was really under the uh, legitimizing force of marital health that what we would call porn kind of enters the German scene. Uh, and this was just not true in the United States. It, it's, it was explained in a different way and excused in a different way here. We'll, we'll come to that in a second. But, okay, now we're back to uh, Beata Usa, and um, it's the 1950s, and she is starting to truck in things which are uh, less contraceptive and more erotic. You can take it from there. Okay, well, I, I, I actually want to spend a little bit more time on the sort of contraceptive end of things. Because okay. 
one, one thing that's really important to understand about the industry is how late it is, how recent it is that pornography dominates the industry. Yeah. In the early post-war years, and this is in West Germany, true, well into the 1960s, the bread and butter of the industry are non-prescription contraceptives and basic how-to manuals. Mm. Okay, that is the bread and butter of the industry, like I say, well into the 1960s. Couples are, you know, again, hard times in Germany after the war. Um, they're, they're, but not just the war. I mean, the fact is they have a terribly deficient sexual education. Mm. They, don't, they don't really know how pregnancy works. They don't know that women too can experience sexual pleasure and how to achieve that. Mm-hmm. So, so basic education is absolutely crucial and that's what the industry really becomes big on. Um, by the early 1960s, half of West German households have patronized a mail order erotica firm at some point or another. Some of them only once or twice. Uh, but of course an additional number have patronized vending machine selling condoms or have gone to the local apothecary. Uh, and they really are looking for the, these kinds of bread and butter items. Now, what does happen is as we move into the into the 1960s is the scene starts to change for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, we are past the kind of desperate post-war years. The economic miracle has happened and um, Germans are in a position to think a little bit more about what we might call luxury items within the world of erotica, not just the things to prevent them from having children that they really can't afford. That's not a luxury item, right? Not things to keep, to patch together a marriage that's terribly unhappy. That's also not a luxury item. But, you know, sales of lingerie pick up. That's a luxury item, right? Um, and, of course, sales of of titillating, arousing materials pick up. Now, of course, arousing materials have always been part of this marketplace. Go back centuries. You'll find the stuff there. Uh, but in the, the era of industrialization and, you know, particularly in terms of you know, consumer demand, uh, it's really in the 1960s in West Germany when the basics have been taken care of, uh, the, the post-war need has been taken care of, and the matter of sexual education. By this time, the population has has educated itself in one way or another to, to a significant extent. Now there's a greater turn towards pornography, towards arousing materials. Uh, and this has um, a very a very striking effect on the gendering of the marketplace. It has a striking effect on whether the marketplace is understood to be situated within the married couple or not, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the terminology I use for that is this is that in, in the earlier age, the, the function of the industry, the idea was um, that, that consumption would be an aid to companionate sexual pleasure. Mm-hmm. You would go out and buy condoms or you'd go out and buy a how-to manual and that would help sexual pleasure within the companionate couple. Mm-hmm. What happens now is you move to solo sexual pleasure in consumption. And the functions of pornography are very different. I mean, couples can use it for mutual arousal, but the fact is um, that, that, that pornography is very much about voyeurism and it's very much about masturbation, yep. right? So you have sort of the pleasure in consumption itself, no partner necessary, mm-hmm. and overwhelmingly targeting a male audience, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. rather than the heterosexual couple. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll say as an aside here, we could talk a little bit about this later. There is, of course, also an erotica marketplace targeting same-sex attracted people, um, 
that that's less the world I'm talking about, which is the world of kind of the big business, because they're very concerned with staying legal. And until male same-sex relations are legalized in West Germany, they just have to be very careful. Um, But there is that marketplace, that kind of illicit marketplace as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the the turn to pornography is a a change in the marketplace, but it's also a change in who's buying, and it's a change in the function of of, what's this product supposed to do for you. And it also changes the culture at large, Mm -hmm. uh, because rather than taking home a book and reading it with your partner and then having sex in private, pornography seems much more public, mm-hmm. right? You've, you have it, – it's sold in the newsstands. You see it as you're walking to work. You see it as you're walking to school. And that feels like a very different environment. Mm-hmm. The public mm-hmm. nature of pornography feels very different to people. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk just for a second about um, – I, I, I always wondered about this because of an Iggy Pop song. I'll probably talk about this called uh, – what's – uh, the song is called Five Foot One, and it has a line in it, I wish life could be Swedish magazines. I never understood that until I read your book. Um, the role of the Swedes and the Danes, their last great contribution to Western civilization. <laughs> well, there you go. You I'm know, sorry for the Swedish and Danish listeners out there, but the, Sometimes you did Sometimes countries can make a big difference. Yeah, so tell us a little um, about that. Yeah, yeah, what happens is that Denmark and Sweden are the first countries to legalize pornography. Denmark legalizes uh, pornography in uh, written pornography in 1967 and pornographic images in 69 and Sweden uh, authorizes, legalizes all pornography text and image, including moving image, in 1971. At this point, West Germany uh, pornography is still illegal there. It's still illegal pretty much everywhere else. So what happens, you know, Denmark and Sweden, they have these producers of pornography needless to say they have rather small domestic markets. These are small countries, but there's a fantastic export potential. Mm -hmm. So Denmark and Sweden really set to exporting their wares. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it happens, Germany is very clear, borders on Denmark. <laughs> you know, it's a little ferry ride away from Sweden. So for both the Danes and the Swedes, West Germany is really a prime marketplace. There's a lot of wealth in West Germany, a lot of potential consumers, and it's very close by. Transportation is relatively easy. It's very easy to smuggle into Germany just because it's so close. And there's, there's this land border with Denmark. Uh, so one thing that does happen is that in the early 1970s, West Germany becomes kind of awash in Scandinavian pornography. And in addition to that, there's a kind of a tourist industry uh, organized around pornography. You know, Germans will cross over the, you know, will, 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 will cross 50 meters over the Danish border mm-hmm. and go to a shop that accepts German currency and buy pornography there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so, so both Sweden and Denmark become very important. And the fact of their economic activity does play a role in pushing other countries to legalize pornography. The fact is, you know, if you're, if you're going to be, if, you're, if your citizens are going to be consuming pornography anyway, you may as well be collecting the tax dollars rather mm-hmm. than sending that money abroad. Mm-hmm. And so that, that, is, that is an element of the legalization of pornography, although not, not, not the most important. Right. How does UZA um, respond to this? Well, Chris, as it happens, Uza's firm is in the city of Flensburg, which literally the, the northern border of the city of Flensburg is Denmark. Mm-hmm. So she's physically quite close to this. Germany is a pretty big country. So, of course, there are parts of Germany where Scandinavia feels quite far away, but it certainly does not feel far away from Flensburg. Um, she, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a hop, skip, and a jump away. Uh, she responds to this um, – you know, basically, the the big erotica firms are, in any case, very interested in pushing the envelope of what's legal. You know, they they want to be able to sell more stuff, and there's clearly consumer demand. So even without the help of the Scandinavians, the the big German erotica firms are very interesting at kind of pushing at the borders of what's permitted, and then perhaps also helping to get the legal uh, restrictions. 
you know, upended. In 1969, there's a very important court case in Germany. This goes up to the Constitutional Court, and it's kind of the pivotal obscenity trial of the century in West Germany. It's around the uh, the book Fanny Hill, mm-hmm. which is really an, an 18th century English novel about this village girl who goes to London, the big city, becomes a prostitute, and she writes about her sexual adventures. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, and the book's you know, been in and out of print a number of times. It's been translated into many languages. Languages. It comes to it. It's, it's retranslated and published in Germany in 1964. The moral purity advocates uh, file suit that this book is obscene, and it eventually goes to the Constitutional Court, which in 1969 determines in this case that the obscenity court, uh, the obscenity statutes are invalid. Mm-hmm. They're void. Uh, that basically they they. The obscenity statutes dated from the year 1900 and that they just aren't fitting for the year 1969. So at the same time, you have the sort of uh, Scandinavian pornography coming into the German scene. You also have, although pornography hasn't actually been legalized, the old obscenity statutes have been voided in 1969. So that actually does open the floodgates to domestic production of pornography. And there's this kind of weird legal limbo for a few years. The old obscenity statutes are void. No new law has come into place. That eventually happens in 1973. A new law is passed that that, that goes into effect in 75, which I can talk about a little bit later if you like. Uh, But you have what's called the porn wave. And the porn wave has to do both with the aftermath of the Fannie Hill decision and domestic production and with the impact of Scandinavian pornography. So from like Beata Usa, this is, this is just a ter- terrific opening. And this is really where, um, although, you know, again, there's been through the, from the mid-60s to this point, a kind of a, a slightly increasing, you know, titillating uh, strand in, in what they're trying to push. 1969 is what really changes things. And what's make, it's, that's, that's, that's what makes it possible to publish really explicit materials and, and market them openly. Mm-hmm. So l- let me ask you this. What exactly, um, uh, what exactly was the legal framework at the time for this kind of thing? Um, I want to talk about that and also in conjunction with a, one of the theses of the book, and that has to do with the logic of liberalism, how it – how it sort of um, – it always had a vector. It was going in a certain direction. It doesn't rest. Yeah, yeah. Well, the legal there, – there are two elements to the big le- – to the legal framework. One are these obscenity statutes from 1900, which were controversial even in 1900. They were on the books pretty restrictive, um, and they basically, they basically regulated, among other things, but what's important for, for my work is they, obscen- they regulated obscenity in text and image – and object intended for obscene purposes. Mm. So, so that's obscenity. In practice, uh, the, the, the obscenity statutes were controversial mainly because of the threat they posed to avant-garde art. Um, most people, even people who were relatively liberal or progressive, really weren't interested in defending smut, but they were interested in defending art and literature. So that's that's the main reason the obscenity statutes were controversial. And when push came to shove, it actually was pretty hard to get a conviction under the obscenity statutes. And for that reason, the moral purity advocates pushed for another law with a kind of a lower threshold. They first did so in the Weimar period. Um, they passed a law with a colorful uh, – they, they advocated for a law that was eventually passed in 1926 uh, called the, the Law Regarding Filth and Trash in print. <laughs> Which sounds even better. Yeah. Schmutz and Schundgesetz. Um, that law 
for various reasons, went out of force in the Nazi era. But then after the Nazi era was over, uh, there was nothing anymore. There was essentially no censoring body. Uh, So in the 1950s, the moral purity advocates once again lobbied for a law that was kind of on the model of the old filth and trash law, but now it was called uh, a law to to protect, for the protection of youth, you know, from a a law regarding youth endangerment in text and image and object. That was passed in 1953 and it had a much lower threshold. Objects that were obscene were just banned. But if an object was, let's say a magazine or, you know, whatever, was was ruled to be youth endangering, it wasn't strictly speaking banned, but it couldn't be disseminated or displayed in a way that youth had access to. Mm-hmm. And that was, for the most part, enough to essentially remove it from the marketplace. What that meant is if you had a bookstore, you couldn't have that book on your shelves because a young person could walk in and pull the book off the shelf. You could keep the book under the table. And if an adult customer walked in, you could offer that adult customer the book. But, you know, under the table, sales are going to be small. The the one problem with the law, it turned out from the from the view of moral purity advocates, is that it had an unintended loophole. And it was a kind of loophole you drive a truck through, which was that <laughs> it, it sort of neglected to deal with mail order. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons mail order became so big. Mail order just was not restricted in the same way as some other outlets were uh, from from peddling youth endangering materials. How exactly that worked is quite technical, and I recommend you read the book if you really want to understand the details. I won't bore you with them here. Um, but, uh, but, this, but again, mail order, it turned out, was very successful at, at exploiting this loophole. That was the, the legal framework. And what happens over the course of the years is that the, uh, the measures regarding youth endangerment, the enforcement of those measures is a complicated business. The law itself appears quite restrictive. It actually, both for contemporaries and historians, this particular law on youth endangerment has kind of been held up as a marker of the sort of the simultaneous censoring and prudish and illiberal qualities of, of Adenauer's Germany, Germany, West Germany under the chancellorship of Konrad Adenauer, mm-hmm. um, who had his post from 1949 to 1963. In reality, the the law was implemented with a little bit more discernment than that. And even the people who were implementing the law in many ways did have a commitment to constitutional principles. And this is what it gets us to this issue of liberalism. Uh, And my sense here is that um, these discussions of sexuality are really quite crucial to the evolution of liberalism. In my case in West Germany, but we see this happening in other, other liberal societies as well. Liberalism is founded in the 18th century, and one of the the real arguments for liberalism, in a sense, rests on male virility. That is, men who have property, who have a wife, who have children, who support them, uh, they have that kind of authority in the household. How is it that in the public sphere they can be ruled by some autocratic monarch? Right. Mm-hmm. So, so their 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 authority within the household, and their which which is really established upon their upon male virility, becomes an argument for liberalism. Um, now, once liberalism comes into being, the state becomes the upholder of the moral order that, in turn, upholds liberalism. 
So the state becomes the upholder of a moral order that uh, protects the family, that values the male head of household, or you know, the sort of conventional family that we think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these kinds of things are part of a moral framework that underpins liberalism. But liberalism also has an ideology of, of the autonomy of the individual. And if you have an ideology of the autonomy of the individual – over the long run, you're going to have propertyless men who can't support a family saying, how about me? You're going to have women saying, how about me? You're going to have all kinds of people who aren't heads of households, who aren't adhering in one way or the other to that kind of morale, this, this kind of household morality that upholds liberalism. They're going to be claiming liberalism as a, as a way of, of emancipating themselves. So there's this kind of running tension in liberalism between upholding the male-headed household, the family, you know, the authority of the man within the household, privileging sexuality within marriage, privileging heterosexuality over other forms of, self, of sexual expression. There's going to be that strand of liberalism, the sort of upholding of the moral authority, of, of the moral order that's understood to be intrinsic to liberalism. But then you're also going to have the strand of liberalism that's about individual rights and individual autonomy. And over the course of the decades of the centuries, really, this works itself out. Now, what's interesting in the West German case is that, you know, the Germans have one failed experience in liberal democracy, the Weimar period. They then experienced fascism. East Germany is now uh, in the post-war period under a communist regime. So liberalism feels endangered. It feels delicate. And West Germans are very concerned with making liberalism work this time. It's a bulwark against totalitarianism, whether that means fascism or whether that means communism. Liberalism is a bulwark against totalitarianism. Uh, But what does that mean? Does that mean upholding the kind of conventional male-headed household? Does it mean upholding a, a conservative sexual moral order? Or does that mean upholding individual rights and civil liberties. And that's the tension we see sort of playing itself out over the obscenity statutes and over uh, the statutes regarding youth endangerment. What is the, what, what is the real job of liberalism here? Mm-hmm. And who wins? Who wins? Well, well I the, think I was going to say, I think I know the answer to that question, but I, I think we all know the answer to that question, right? Yeah, I mean, who wins are, are the people saying, you know, individual autonomy and basically a more restrictive view of the state. It is not the state's job to uphold a sexual moral order, it's the state's job to protect individual liberties and to intervene only when the exercise of individual liberties causes demonstrable harm. Yeah, that's the harm principle. It's John the harm Stuart principle. Mill. That's there you right. go. Yeah. Right. So what happens, and you know, around the same time pornography is being liberalized, of course, all other kinds of aspects of the sexual, sexual law are being revised. Same-sex relationships between men are, are liberalized. Um, divorce laws are liberalized. Um, adultery is decriminalized. It's still a grounds for divorce, but it's decriminalized. So the, lots of changes in, in the sexual criminal law occur around the same time, the late 1960s and the early 1970s. And basically the argument is if two men want to have sex with each other, who are they hurting? Mm-hmm. Right? And the state should only step in if there's demonstrable harm. Mm-hmm. The, the difficulty with pornography is that the question arises that, okay, if you, an adult person, want to read porn in the privacy of your living room, who are you harming? That's one argument to it. But the, the reason the liberalization of pornography caused special consternation was that, again, pornography is marketed publicly. 
young people are exposed to it. And then the question comes up, well, maybe it is harming young people. Mm -hmm. Maybe the public nature of it does mean that pornography falls into a a different category. And I was amazed to discover this when I was doing this research, but with all the revisions to the sexual criminal code that occurred, including the decriminalization of male same-sex relation, the one that caused the greatest public uproar, the one, the, the, the revision that caused the, you know, the biggest petition drives, the most people writing letters to their parliamentary representatives was the legalization of pornography. Mm-hmm. That's what the public was really exercised about. It had to do with that fear about the effects on young people, and it had to do with fears about the public nature of it. Mm-hmm. One thing it didn't really have to do with, interestingly enough, was fears about its effects on women. Uh, and one interesting thing that happens in all of this is that there's this kind of void of um, of gender-sensitive voices to the fact that pornography is very different for men and women. It's targeting a male audience. Mm-hmm. The, the, the people who are portrayed nude and vulnerable are overwhelmingly women. Yep. It's mainly the conservatives who are complaining about that. They're concerned about it. But, of course, it's very easy for people on the left to say, oh, you're just being prudish. It's not until a few years after pornography is legalized that the feminist anti-pornography movement really gets going. That really happens in the 1980s, mm-hmm. and you start to have a, a really well-developed feminist critique of the pornography industry and the effects of pornography, both on those involved in its making and on consumers. But by that time, the horses are out of the stall. Yeah, you know, it's already right. the 1980s. Yeah, I wanted to actually go back to uh, Beata Use for a moment, because it seems to me that the, um, the uh, Danish and Swedish invasion, if we can call it that, uh, and also the... Uh, repeal of these r- restrictive obscenity laws and, and the ways in which they um, opened up new markets for what, what we would probably call uh, hardcore pornography. They, they put her and people like her, but especially her in a kind of a funny situation because on the one hand, she was positioned to make a fortune. And on the other hand, she could no longer claim that what she was doing was for the purposes of marital health, um, really, because the things she was selling were about masturbation. That's right. Did she, did, she, did she have trouble sort of wrapping her mind around this? Did she resist it? How did she react to it? Well, I can tell you how she reacted. I can't really tell you about her mind because I somewhat, long ago I, I decided I'm going to stop trying to decide. That's <laughs> so, probably a good and, idea. And, you know, I'm, I'm not in a good position to know what really drove her. But I can tell you how she behaved in the marketplace. Um, and there's a good reason that, why it's, it's hard to know what really drove her because she was very, very aware of her public image. And she, she created created and crafted her public image quite carefully, um, you know, in a way that makes it, in a sense, very uh, m- much easier to sort of see, okay, well, what, what did she do publicly? What did what effects did all of this have on the marketplace? What effects did it have on her public image? And it's a little hard to know what she was really thinking about all of this, but that's okay because, you know, in the end, what's really interesting is the effects on German society and Western society more broadly. Um, you know, of course, like you say, early on, she was able to say, listen, I'm not just a businesswoman here. I am I'm contributing to the happiness of married couples. I'm performing mm-hmm. a very important social function. We have people who are miserable because they're sexually ignorant. I'm helping to educate them. And the, the educational function of is really not to be underestimated. She was probably Germans, Germany's most effective sex educator mm-hmm. through the 1950s and into the early 1960s. So she could really, really plausibly claim that she was performing an incredibly important social function. With the switch to pornography, like you say, she was 
poised to make a fortune. Actually, she she was already a millionaire, but she was she became even wealthier with pornography. But it was much harder to claim the same kind of um, social impact. So she kind of what what happened here is that she sort of wrestled with that for the rest of her life, I would say. And she re- the reason I feel she wrestled with it is because she seemed to follow two different strategies and never really resolved which one she wanted. One was to say that, wait a second, pornography does fulfill an important social function. Uh, couples can look at pornography together. And particularly once you move to the video revolution where people are taking VCRs home to watch in the privacy of their own homes, um, she'd say, you know, this can be a way to spice up a marriage that's kind of getting dulled by routine. Mm -hmm. You know, you can watch a pornographic video and learn about new positions, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she would make a claim that that pornography was about the companionate couple. that, that, that indeed it's, it's the same mission she's always been serving. It's just that the needs of the public have changed. Once upon a time, uh, it was hard to get contraceptives, so she supplied those. Now people can more easily get contraceptives, but there's a kind of education that can happen through pornography and an arousal that can happen through pornography that can be useful for both, both partners in the couple. So there was that strand she followed, but a lot of people had trouble believing it uh, because it was pretty clear who was buying porn. Um, that is that it was men, and she, um, and she and knew this from her own sort of demographic studies, right? She, I mean, she, she yeah, she knew it. She knew it, of course. Yeah. You know, um, so you know, so in, in some ways, she tried to shape that. She tried to change that. She would, for example. Uh, tamper with the layout of her shops so the porn wasn't in front but rather the porn was in the back and the front was lingerie so maybe you know maybe if porn is in front it's kind of hard for the women to enter the shop more more tempting for men to enter the shop but if you put the porn in the back and put the lingerie in the front it's more inviting for women to come into the, the shop so she did kind of try to tamper with that and sort of see if she could find a way to make the the new sort of market regime a little bit more amenable to women. Mm-hmm. But she, but the reason she was doing that is, this is because she knew that it wasn't that amenable to women. The other strand um, she sort of tried to follow was to say she wasn't supposed to be a social, you know, she, she, she'd say, I'm not a missionary, I'm a businesswoman. You know, and she had many different iterations of this. I'm not Jesus. I'm a businesswoman. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and what she was doing here is saying that, you know, this was, you know, basically – the consumer is king. The consumer is queen. There's consumer demand for the stuff. I provide it. I run an above-board business. I pay my taxes. Um, I, I've, you know, I, I, I run. I run a clean operation uh, in business terms, and I meet consumer demand. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm supposed to do as a businesswoman. No more, no less. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this issue of whether pornography is damaging to women, whether it's damaging to children, I follow the law. Mm-hmm. And the law has certain provisions in place to protect children. If those provisions aren't fully effective, then then that's 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 an issue for legislators to resolve. Mm-hmm. But I follow the law, and consumers want what I have to sell, so I'm a good businesswoman. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, these two strands are a little bit in tension with each other, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, the the fact is, and this this is the kind of ultimate riddle of pornography within liberalism is that it's very hard to resolve these things. The, yeah. the, the, you know, the, a free market regime, a regime of liberal individualism, um, a regime of protection of vulnerable populations, particularly youth um, and, and children. How do you reconcile these things in a liberal regime? And this is something that, you know, again, I'm telling a German story, mm-hmm. but it's a tension Americans live with when we, you know, when we look at controversies over sexuality. This is something that's really a, a very common 
problem mm-hmm. uh, for liberal liberal states in the age of a more liberalized sexuality. Yeah. I mean, I guess that it's true that they're hard to resolve, but it seems to me like the pornographers always win. I mean, I, I remember, you know, from my youth that uh, you just wouldn't see pornographic magazines on newsstands. And um, now pornography is everywhere. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's on your, I was going to say it's on your TV. Exactly. It depends on where you live and what kind of cable channels you get. But it's all over the Internet. You know, you walk That's into right. any magazine right. shop, it's all yeah. over the place. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's now, uh, I don't know if it's been mainstream, but it just seems to me like, you know, uh, the pornographers have ridden uh, liberalism uh, in the kind of libertarian sense uh, to uh, a great victory <laughs> almost yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And, and you know, in a, in a way what that, that argues for is, you know, in, in a sense, the marketplace wins. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the legislators can try and debate these things, try and figure out, you know, all, you know but all the time they're debating it, the marketplace is just, just doing its thing. Yeah. Oh, what, uh, and uh, that's where we end up. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a, a question which is sort of tangentially related to the, to the book, but I think it's related to the topic. And that you mentioned, and I remember this well from the 80s, uh, the, the feminist critique of, of pornography uh, by, by people like um, um, Catherine McKinnon and Andrew Dworkin and, and, and many others, actually. Uh, it just seems to me that they failed utterly, uh, that, that you don't even hear about them anymore. Maybe I'm just reading the wrong places, but it's just not that these arguments aren't taken very seriously anymore. Why, why is that? Why, why did they just disappear? Or did they? Am I wrong? Well, I mean, you certainly, uh, you know, the, the, you certainly can continue to find feminist critiques of the industry. Um, there's a little bit of a, you know, it's, it's certainly something that, you know, feminist scholars continue to, yeah, yeah, no, they and do. activists yeah, continue sure. to make. But there are a few additional voices. One uh, very important element is a, a voice that didn't really exist so much in the 80s, but has become much more developed since then, which is um, for a uniquely feminist pornography. Mm-hmm. Right. Sort of saying that um, it's not pornography. That's the problem per se. It's pornography and patriarchy. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's the fact that pornography in, in, in the in the you know, in, in our current society is very much about exploitation of women for the purposes of male arousal. But that doesn't have to be so. So you do see the emergence of feminist pornography. It's small in terms of the overall marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact is we still do live in a you know a, a society that privileges men in the marketplace and and you know in, in many ways um, and the the non-feminist pornography industry is very well established mm-hmm. it's just not going anywhere um, you also see discussions I, I'd say the earlier discussions about the, the the earlier discussions about feminism and pornography focused especially I would say on the consumer end of things. That is the notion that um, women who, let's say, walk by, you know, constantly have to be walking by pornographic representations, either in the workplace or passing the newsstands on the way to work, um, are threatened in a way. Mm-hmm. This sort of sets them up as sexual objects and that men as consumers of pornography are perhaps more inclined towards perhaps you know, at worst violence against women, but at the very least to view women um, as, as, as sexual objects. Uh, the... 
feminist thinking about this has moved to considering also more and more the production end of it uh, and thinking about, well, how about women in the pornography yeah. industry? Yeah. And there is, you know, frankly, a lot to investigate, yeah. right? This is an industry that on the one hand is full of terrible abuses, uh, exploitation of drug-addicted women, for example, um, exploitation of, of runaways and so on and so forth. At the same time, there are women, like there are men in the industry, you know, who perform in pornographic films uh, or who set up their own websites who have decided this is what they want to do right. and are kind of in control of their careers. Mm-hmm. That exists as well. So the discussion has become a little bit more complicated uh, by the fact that now we think more about the production end. Certainly the debates I'm looking at you know, in the 60s and the 70s, no one was thinking about the production end. They were all thinking about the effect on consumers. Yeah. Right. And just the production end was just this shady thing. No one ever thought about. But that discussion about the production end of things is is an interesting one. And it does also get us into issues of autonomy uh, and vulnerability and abuse and so on and so forth. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it strikes me. Uh, I studied this topic a little bit uh, in conjunction with a book that I wrote about uh, communication. And it seemed to me that the strongest argument uh, against uh, sort of uh, free and easy pornography that I heard within the liberal context is that. It is by necessity, and we know this empirically, related to child pornography. If you have one, you always have the other. You don't mm-hmm. just get straightforward pornography. You get straightforward pornography and you get child pornography. I mean, we even hear about it here in Iowa City. People get busted all the time right? for right. huge caches of child porn. And in those instances, we know that the people involved are harmed. And I think yeah. this is just a, you know, I mean, I guess the only argument you can make against it is, well, we want the one, so we'll tolerate the other. But I'm like, yeah. should we tolerate the other? Really? Do you really want to do that? Um but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a that that is a you know leads to harder stuff one wants to say or something like that. But it's a truly disturbing. I mean, it really e- even here in Iowa we have these these you know we see these cases in the papers of people busted for huge caches of child porn, and yeah. it's very it's very very disturbing. Let me let me ask you this: we're almost, we're almost out of time, but I want to know what do people today think about Beata uh, Uze in 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 Germany? Well. Some time ago, actually, already starting in the 1980s, there were there was certain slightly disturbing market research that showed that people, everyone knew her name, but a lot of people thought she'd already died. Um, <laughs> and that was because they, they really associated her with her pioneering efforts in the 1950s. And by the time you get to the 1980s, she really almost seems like a voice from another era. At the same time, her firm, of course, continues to be very, very successful. Beata Uza herself died in the summer of 2001. Um, her firm is still going strong. Her firm was actually the first to go, the first erotica firm anywhere in the world to go public on the mm. stock market in 1999. So it's it's you know it's it's an innovator in business. What do they think about her now? You know, I think now, of course, Germans by this time so take for granted uh, the existence of the erotica sector and its visibility. I mean, you know, you can see erotica shops opposite corner bakeries in in relatively small, small towns. Yeah. Um, and, and this is just part of the landscape in Germany. And Beate Uze is, at this point, one of many. Uh, there are many, there are other, other erotica firms that have brand name recognition at this point. But, of course, she's the, the, the hers is the only one where, again, a large number of people still do know the person. Mm-hmm. And I should say, after, after those, those polls in the early 80s where they discovered that a lot of people thought that maybe she'd already died, she became a public figure again. Mm. So by the time you... <laughs> 80s, everyone knew very well that she was very... I'm not dead yet. 
Yeah, I mean, she, she was a, a very brilliant public relations person. Um, she she was very creative in that way and very energetic. She was just the kind of personality who thrived, you know, under the glare of the TV lights. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think people now, you know, they, they on the one hand think of her in, associ- in, in conjunction with the earlier post-war years, with the 1950s. I think they think of her in a bifurcated way. On the one hand, they think of the function she served in the 1950s. You know, as as Germany's sex educator, as West Germany's sex educator, as the person who, you know, stood up to the constitutional court in some very important cases, um, as the person who provided desperate West Germans with information, with education, with contraceptives and so on and so forth. Uh, they, they know that part of their history, and that's kind of the good Beatuza. And then they know the later Beata Uzu, who basically made a killing in porn. And there's a little more ambivalence around that. You know, on the one hand, again, West Germans are accustomed to the erotica sector. It's just kind of part of the landscape. But, you know, of course, there's more discomfort with that than there is, for example, with a basic sex education. Uh, You know, there's there's a sense that, you know, basically someone's making a lot of money off of this. And whether it's serving a real social function is open to question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's inter- it's it's very. I, I just find it very interesting. Um, anyway, we're out of time, and I, I want to say thank you very much, Lisa, for being on the show. But I also want to uh, ask you our traditional final question here on New Books in History, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? Oh, what am I working on now? Well, uh, actually, I just finished a uh, a memoir. This is quite a different project. I just finished a memoir of a stillbirth I experienced in 2008. Mm-hmm. I'm a seeking an agent or a publisher, if anyone's interested for that. And I'm now working on a multi-general history, uh, multi-generational history of my father's family. My father, again, is a German-Jewish refugee. Um, and I'm looking at the family history back to the late 19th century. Uh-huh. Um, kind of an interesting project uh, about these sort of intersections of sort of intimate family relationships relationships uh-huh. with sort of, you know, the forces of history writ large. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I'm doing now. Well, that's really great. And I, I hope that uh, you, you'll be on the show to talk about, to talk about uh, all of your work. Okay. Thanks very much. All right. Well, uh, we've been talking with uh, Lisa Heinemann about her book, Before Porn Was Legal, The Erotic Empire of Beata Use. Lisa, thanks very much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Lisa Heinemann about her book, Before Porn Was Legal, The Erotic Empire of Beata Use. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.